Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 73, Native Americans 13, The Southeast. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. If you want to support the show, then the best way of doing that is by going to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and clicking on the PayPal subscription button. For only $4.99 per month, you can get access to our exclusive premium feed, now covering the military strategy of the Roman Empire. Having spent the last three episodes dealing with one of the richest areas of Native American history, the Northeast Woodlands, it's time to cover something different. We covered many tribes that we've already dealt with extensively and spent a great portion of the last episode properly introducing the Iroquois into the narrative, but this time we turn towards further down at the Atlantic coast to cover the southeast. We'll begin, as always, with a quote from Alvin Josephes, The Indian Heritage of America. Quote, The southeastern portion of the present-day United States, from the Atlantic coast to the lower Mississippi Valley, and from Tennessee to the Gulf of Mexico, was the homeland of many populous tribes of several different language families who lived in farming towns, formed a number of strong confederacies, some under absolute leaders, and possessed a rich and complex culture with roots in dynamic and accomplished mound-building societies of the past. A large part of the region was occupied by the tribes of the Muscogean branch of the Gulf language stock. They included the Creeks, the Hichites, and Yamases in Georgia, Seminoles and Appalachians in Florida, Alabamas and Mobiles in Alabama, Cochdors and Chickasaws and Humas in Mississippi, other tribes related to the Muscogean, both by language and culture, were the Timucas of northeastern Florida and the Tunicas and Chitimacas of Louisiana, while still others who were related linguistically but were on a lower level of culture included the Caluasas of southern Florida and the Atacapas of Louisiana. Large sections of the area were inhabited by members of other language families. In North Carolina and Tennessee were the towns of the Cherokees, a southern Iroquoian-speaking people. Kadoman speakers, including the Caddos, Kitches, Wacos, and Tawakonis, dwelled on the cultural area's western fringe, in eastern Texas and the Red River Valley, where their culture contained elements of that of the buffalo hunting tribes of the plains. Biloxis on the Mississippi Gulf Coast and Arkansas and Quapaws in Arkansas were Sioux-speaking peoples, and Uchis in northern Georgia spoke tongue that appears to have been related to Sioux. Finally, the Coahuitecan language was represented by the Tonkawas of Texas, neighbours of other speakers of the same language stock who were grouped more appropriately into the culture area of northern Mexico. End quote. But enough of you guys laughing at my pronunciations. It's time for some history. 
The early history of the region followed a pattern which should, by now, be very familiar to you. It was initially inhabited by the early arrivals, who lived in small, nomadic tribes who roamed and hunted. This all changed following an alteration in climatic conditions following the end of the last ice age. The temperature warmed, the large game animals either disappeared or moved, and the people left behind were forced to adapt, sparking the archaic period of development. Things changed for a greater emphasis on gathering and hunting smaller animals. Those that lived along the coasts and rivers of the region had additional food sources. Gathering shellfish, in particular, formed a large part of diets. This was the way that things were for thousands of years, but things suddenly began to alter about four and a half thousand years ago. Out of nowhere, pottery suddenly arrived. The area that it appeared in is particularly interesting. We have talked previously about how pottery probably arrived in North America through spreading from Mesoamerica. With this in mind, you probably expect the earliest finds in the region to be in Louisiana, or somewhere else along the Gulf Coast. But no. Pottery first appears along the Savannah River. Yep. A swamp in South Carolina is the first place that pottery appears. About 4,000 years ago, pottery also appears in Florida and Alabama. These finds have the additional noteworthiness of being fibre-tempered pottery, a trait more commonly associated with pottery found in Ecuador than North America. There seems to have been a migration wave into the region about 1700 BC, with arrivals into the area from Mexico. The Poverty Point region around the lower Mississippi River in Louisiana saw new developments. These include indications of use of agriculture, a concentrated population, and a religious system. But, as I am forced to say frequently, we don't know anything about what this culture was. We can detect an advanced civilization at work, but we don't know anything about it other than that it existed. We are just left with artifacts and huge earthworks. It reached its high point around 800 BC. Burial mounds started appearing in the region from about 1000 BC, most likely due to influence from the Hopewell culture to the north, which we've already spent a considerable amount of time covering, but which had significant effects here. The population increased, and settlements grew in size considerably. This led to the increase in trade, which the Hopewell took such advantage of. This culture went through multiple stages, from the Poverty Point tradition to the Gulf tradition, and then the Troyville stage, all of which were heavily influenced by the Hopewell. This was how things lasted until about the year 700 AD, in addition to numerous other local traditions. For about the year 700, a new culture began to develop known as either Mississippian or Middle Mississippian because it had its origins in the Middle Mississippi. Its main centre was Cahoyka, Illinois, rather close to the modern St. Louis. This was quite close to the Hopewell culture, and it certainly was inspired by Hopewell culture, but it was also very different. The region was also influenced by ideas coming from the Huastec area of Mexica, 
transferred through eastern Texas. This culture dominated the southeast, particularly after the year 1200. Mississippian culture had such features as major ceremonial centres, large and fortified temple mounds, and intense agriculture. New strains of corn were developed. Artistic knowledge also developed, and culture produced beautiful engravings and paintings. Religious life was sophisticated. Temples were built with eternal fires in them, which were renewed each year. Some of these ceremonial centres were far larger than anything constructed by the Hopewell culture. Some wonder whether or not this culture was a theocracy. It took on local forms, but dominated in a large belt from the Mississippi to the Gulf Coast. The other significant culture at work was Cadoan culture based in Oklahoma, eastern Texas, northern Louisiana, and southern Arkansas. From about the year 1200, something known as the Southern Cult emerged and spread throughout the region. It seems to have had its origins in Mexico and was spread to the southeast from Texas. It was a death cult, symbolised by the long-nosed god, a small mask with a long copper nose. The culture began to collapse in the 16th century. There was a breakdown in the old ceremonial centres as political and religious institutions broke down. People dispersed from the great centres and spread into smaller settlements. Now, what I usually say here is that we have no idea why this culture collapsed, but amazingly, we actually do in this case. The answer is the Europeans who had arrived in Mexico. Racing far ahead of the Europeans were the diseases they carried. Epidemics swept through North America and decimated the population. As the population numbers collapsed, so did the civilization, and people returned to rural villages. Only a few remnants survived, including the Nanches, who the French found along the Mississippi River in the late 17th century. It seemed to have been a very authoritarian and obsessed with their god-king, who was descended from the Son of God. I'm not really sure how much of this account I actually take seriously. The more powerful groups in the region were confederations. There was a group in Georgia of the Muscogees, who were known to the English as Creeks. They had a confederation of about 50 towns, divided into white towns and red towns. The white towns were peaceful and produced supplies which were used by the red war towns. There were other large groups in this phase of mound building, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, but the Cherokees were the largest. They lived in western North Carolina and eastern Tennessee, and had a population of some 20,000 people. Settlements were stockaded villages with approximately 100 dwelling in each. These had a framework of poles which were then filled with mud plaster or thatch. Walls were often not used in the warm summer. Buildings were constructed around a central square used for ceremonies. This was the state of affairs when the Europeans arrived in the region. Most Native Americans had a brutal future following the arrival of the Europeans, but it was particularly bad for the tribes of the southeast. 
many were instantly wiped out. Those tribes that lasted into the 19th century were forcibly removed from the region to accommodate the expanding United States. But that is all for the future. If you've enjoyed today's episode, remember you can find more information online. The website is thehistoryofpodcast.com and the place to sign up for membership is there. I'm on social media, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast and at historyjamie on Twitter. Feel free to send me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. This week also happens to be the seventh anniversary of me starting podcasting. So thank you, everyone, who's been on this amazing journey with me. And thanks for listening to this episode. I'll see you next time.